You're listening to The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. This audiobook is brought to you by Kriti and it's narrated by Aishwarya. Chapter 8 I couldn't sleep all night. A foghorn was growing instantly on that sound and I tossed half sick between grossier reality and savage, frightening dreams. Towards dawn, I heard a taxi go up Gatsby Drive and immediately I jumped out of bed and began to dress as I felt that I had something to tell him, something to warn him about and morning would be too late. Crossing his lawn, I saw that his friend door was still open and he was leaning against a table in a hall, heavy with dejection or sleep. Nothing happened, he said wanly. I waited and about four o'clock she came to the window and stood there for a minute and then turned out the light. His house had never seemed to so enormous to me as it did that night when we hunted throughout the great rooms for cigarette. We pushed aside curtains that were like pavilions and felt over innumerable feet of dark wall for electric-like switches. Once I tumbled with a sort of splash upon the key of ghostly piano. There was an inexpectable amount of dust everywhere, and the room were musty, as though they hadn't been aired for many days. I found the humidor on an unfamiliar table with the two staple dried cigarette inside. Throwing open the French windows of a drawing room, we sat smoking out into a darkness. You ought to go away, I said. It's pretty certain they'll trace your car. Go away, old sport. Go to Atlantic City for a week or up to Montreal. He wouldn't consider it. He couldn't possibly leave Daisy until he knew what she was going to do. He was clutching at some last hope and I couldn't bear to shake him free. It was this night that he told me the strange stories of his youth with Dan Cody, told it to me because Jay Gatsby had broken up like glass against Tom Hard Malice and their long secret extraguant was played out. I think that he would have acknowledged anything now without reverse but he wanted to talk about Daisy. She was the first nice girl he had ever known. In various unrevealed capacities, he had come in contact with such people, but always with indesperable barbed wiped between them. He found her excitedly desirable. He went to her house at first with other officers from Camp Taylor and then alone. It amazed him he had never been in such a beautiful house before. But what gave it into an air of breathless intensity was that Daisy lived there. It was as casual a thing to hear as its tent out at a camp vein with her. There was a ripe mystery about it, a hint of bedroom upstairs more beautiful and cool than other corridors and of course romances that were not musty and laid away already in lavender 
but fresh and breathing and relevant air of this year a shining motor cars and of course the dances whose flowers were sarcastically withered it excites him too that many men had already loved daisy it increased her value in his eyes he felt their presence all around the house pervading the air with the shades of echoes of still vibrant emotion but he knew that he was in daisy's house by a colossal accident however glorious might be his future as j gatsby he was at present a penniless young man without a past and at any moment the invisible clock of his uniform might slip from his shoulder so he made the most of his time he took what he could ravenously and unsculptedly eventually he took daisy one still october night took her because he had no real right to touch her hand he might have despised himself for he had certainly taken her under false pretenses i don't mean that he had traded on his planter millions but he had deliberately given daisy a sense of security he let her believe that he was a person from much the same strata at herself that he was fully able to take care of her as a matter of fact he had no such facilities he had no comfortable family standing behind him and he was liable at that whim of an impersonal government to be blown anywhere about the world but he didn't despise himself and it didn't turn out as he had imagined he had intended probably to take what he could and go but now he found that he had committed himself to the following of a grail he knew that daisy was extraordinary but he didn't realize just how extraordinary a nice girl could be she vanished into her rich house into her rich full life leaving gatsby nothing he felt married to her that was all about when they met again two days later it was gatsby who had breathless who was somehow betrayed her porch was bright with a bow luxury of starshine and wicker of a sate squeaked fashionably as she turned towards him and he kissed her curious and lovely mouth she had caught a cold and it made her voice huskier and more charming than ever and gatsby was overwhelming aware of a young and mystery that wealth impersons and preserves of the freshness of many clothes and of daisy gleaming like a silver safe and proud about the hard struggling of the poor i can't describe to you how surprised i was to find out i loved her old sport i even hoped for a while that she'd throw me over but she didn't because she was in love with me too she thought i knew a lot because i knew different things from her well there i was way off my ambition getting deeper in love every minute and all of a sudden i didn't care What was the use of doing great things 
if I could have a better time telling her what I was going to do. On the last afternoon before he went abroad, he sat with Daisy in his arm for a long silent time. It was a cold fall day with a fire in his room and her cheeks flushed. Now and then she moved and he changed her arm a little and once he kissed her dark shining hair. The afternoon had made them tranquil for a mile as if to give them a deep memory for a long parting the next day promised. They had never seen closer in their mouth of love nor conversation more profoundly one with another that when she brushed his silent lips against his coat shoulder or when he touched the end of his finger gently as though she were asleep. She did extraordinarily well in the war. She was a captain before he went to the front and following the arrogant battle he got his majority and command of the divisional machine gun. After the armistice, he tried fashionably to get home, but some complication or misunderstanding sent him to Oxford instead. He was worried now. There was a quality of nervous, despair in Daisy's letter. She didn't see why he couldn't come. She was feeling the pressure of the world outside, and she wanted to see him and feel his presence beside her, and he reassured that she was doing the right thing after all. For Daisy was young and her artificial world was relevant of orchard and pleasant, cheerful snobbery and orchestras which set the rhythm of the year, summing up the sadness and suggestion of life in a new tunes. All night the saxophone wailed the hopeless comment of the Beale Street Blue, while a hundred pair of golden and silver slippers shuffled the shining dust. At a great tea hour, there was always room that throbbed instantly with a slow, sweet fever, while fresh faces drifted here and there like rose petals blown by a sad horn around the floor. Through this twilight, Universe Daisy began to move again with the season. Suddenly, she was again keeping half a dozen dates a day with half a dozen men and throwing asleep at dawn with the beads and chiffon of an evening dress tangled among dying orchards on the floor beside her bed. And all the time, something within her was crying for a decision. She wanted her life shaped now, immediately, and the decision must be made by some force of love, of money, of unquestionable practically that was closed at hand. That force took shape in the middle of spring with the arrival of Tom Puckanen. There was wholesome bulkiness about his person and his position, and Daisy was flattered. Doubtless, there was a certain struggle and a certain relief. The letter reached Gatsby while he was still at Oxford. It was dawn now on Long Island and we went about opening the rest of the window downstairs, filling the house with the great turning 
golden turning light. The shadow of a tree fell abruptly across a dew and ghostly birds began to sing among a blue leaves. There was a slow, pleasant moment in the air, sarcastically by a wind, promising a cool, lovely day. I don't think she ever loved him. Gatsby turned around from a window and looked at me challengingly. You must remember, old sport, she was very excited this afternoon. He told her those things in a way that frightened her, that made it look as if I was some kind of cheap sharper, and the result was she hardly knew what she was saying. He sat down gloomily. Of course, she must have loved him just for a minute, when they were first married, and loved me more even then, do you see? Suddenly, he came out with a curious remark. In any case, he said, it was just personal. What could you make of that, except to suspect some intensity in his conception of the affair that couldn't be measured? He became back from France when Tom and Daisy were still on their wedding trip and made a miserable but irresistible journey to Lossville on the last of their army pay. He stayed there a week, walking and streets where there were footsteps have clinged together through the November night and revisiting the out-of-the-way places to which they have driven in their own white car. Just as Daisy's house had always seemed to him more mysterious and gay than other houses, so his idea of a city itself, even though she has gone from it, was pervaded with a melancholy beauty. He left a feeling that he had searched harder. He might have found her, that he was leaving her behind. The day coach, he was penniless now, was hot. He went out to open vestibule and sat down on a folding chair, and the station slid away and the back of an unfamiliar building moved by, then out into a spring field where a yellow trodley raised them for a minute with people in it who might once have seen the pale magic of a face along the casual street. The tracked curve and now it was going away from the sun, which as it sank lower seemed to spread itself in a benedictine over the vanishing city where she had drawn her breath. He stretched out his hand desperately, as if to snatch out only a wisp of hair, to save a fragment of the spot that she had made lovely for him. But it was all going by too fast now for his blurred eyes and he knew that he had lost the part of it, that freshness and the best forever. It was nine o'clock when we finished breakfast and went out on a porch. The night had made a sharp difference in the weather and there was an autumn flowers in the air. The gardener, the last one of the Gasme former servant, came to the foot of the step. I'm going to drain the pool today, Mr. Gatsby. Leave, I'll start falling pretty soon. And then, there always trouble with the pipeline. Do I do it today, Gatsby? He answered. 
He turned to me apologizingly. You know, old sport, I never used that pool all summer. I looked at my watch and stood up. Twelve minutes to my train. I didn't want to go to the city. I wasn't worth a decent stroke of work, but it was more than that. I didn't want to leave Gatsby. I missed the train and then another before I could get myself away. I'll call you up, I said finally. Do old sport, I'll call you about noon. We walked slowly down the steps. I suppose Daisy will call too. He looked at me anxiously as if he had hoped that I'll collaborate this. I suppose so. Well, goodbye. We shook hands and I started away. Just before I reached the hedge, I remembered something and turned around. There's a rotten crowd, I shouted across the lawn. You're worth the whole damn bunch put together. I've always been glad I said that. It was the only compliment I ever gave him because I disapproved of him from the beginning to end. First, he nodded politely and then his face broke into the radiant and understanding smile as if we'd been in exity catchers on the fact all the time. His gorgeous spring rage of suit made a brilliant spot of color against the white step and I thought of the night when I first came to his ancestral home three months before. The lawn and drive had been crowded with the faces of those who guessed at his corruption and had stood on those steps concealing his incorporatable dream as he waved them goodbye. I thanked him for his hospitality. We were always thanking him for that and I and others. Goodbye, I called. I enjoyed breakfast, Gatsby. Up in the city, I tried for a while to list the quotation on an interruptible amount of stock. Then I fell asleep in my swishel chair. Just before noon, the phone woke me and I started with sweet breaking out of my forehead. It was Jordan Baker. She often called me up at this hour because the uncertainty of her own moment between the hotels and club and private houses made her hard to find in all other way. Usually, her voice came over the fire as if something fresh and cool, as if a diver from a green golf link had come sailing in at all the office window today. But this morning, it seemed harsh and dry. I left Daisy house, she said. I'm at Hempstead and I'm going down to Southampton this afternoon. Probably it had been tactful to leave Daisy house, but the act annoyed me and her next remark made me rigid. You weren't so nice to me last night. How could it have been mattered then? There was a silence for a moment. Then, however, I want to see you. I want to see you too. Suppose I don't go to Southampton and come into town this afternoon? No, I don't think this afternoon. Very well. It's impossible this afternoon. Various.
we talked like that for a while and then abruptly we were talking any longer i don't know which of us hung up with a sharp click but i know i didn't care i couldn't have talked to her across a tea table that day if i never talked to her again in this world i called gatsby house a few minutes later but the line was busy i tried four times finally an exuberant central told me the wire was being kept open for long distance from detriot taking out my timetable i drew a small circle around the 350 train then i leaned back in my chair and tried to think it was just noon when i passed the ash heap on the train that morning i had crossed deliberately to the other side of the car i supposed there'd be a curious crowd around there all day with little boys searching for dark spots in the dust and some gradless man telling over and over what had happened till it become less and less real even to him and he could tell it no longer and miral wilson tragic achievement was forgotten now i want to go back a little and tell what happened at the garage after we left there the night before they had difficulty in locating the sister catherine she must have broken her rule against drinking that night for when she arrived was stupid with liquor and unable to understand that the ambulance had already gone to flushing when they convinced her for that she immediately fainted as if that was the intolerable part of an affair someone kind of curious took her in his car and drove her in the wake of a sister's body until long after midnight a changing crowd lapped up against the front of the garage while george wilson rocked himself back and forth on a coach inside for a while the door of the office was open and everyone who came into the garage glanced irresistibly through it finally someone said it was a shame and closed the door michaelis and several other men were with him first four or five men later two to three men still later michaelis had to ask the last stranger to wait there 15 minutes longer while he went back to his own place and made a pot of coffee after that he stayed there alone with wilson until dawn about 3 o'clock the quality of wilson incoherent muttering changed he grew gutter and began to talk about the yellow car he announced that he had a way of finding out whom the yellow car belonged to and then he blurted out that a couple of months ago his wife had come from a city with a face bruised and her nose swollen but when he heard himself say this he flinged and began to cry oh my god again in this groaning voice michaelis made a clumsy attempt to distract him how long have you been married george come on there try and sit still a minute 
and answer my question how long have you been married 12 years even had any children come on george sit still i asked you a question did you ever had any children the hard brown beetles kept thudding against the dull light and whenever michelson heard a car go tearing along a road outside it sounded to him like the car that hadn't stopped a few hours before he didn't like to go into a garage because the workbench was stained where the body had been lying so he moved uncomfortably around the office he knew every object in it before morning and from the time to time sat down beside wilson trying to keep him more quiet have you got a church you go to sometimes george maybe even if you haven't there before for a long time maybe i could call up the church and get a priest to come over and he could talk to you you see don't belong to any you ought to have a church george for times like this you must have gone to church once didn't you get married in a church listen george listen to me didn't you get married in a church that was a way long time ago the effort of answering broke the rhythm of his rocking for a moment he was silent then the same half knowing half bewildered look came back into his faded eyes look in the drawer there he said pointing at the desk which drawer that drawer that one michelson opened the drawer nearest his hand there was nothing in it but a small expensive dog leash made of leather and braided silver it was apparently new this he inquired holding it up wilson stared and nodded i found it yesterday afternoon she tried to tell me about it but i knew it was something funny you mean your wife bought it she had it wrapped in tissue paper on her bureau michaelis didn't see anything odd in that and he gave wilson a dozen reason why his wife might have bought the dog leash but conceivably wilson heard some of these same explanation before from miril because he began to say oh my god again in a whisper his comforter left several explanation in the air then he killed her said wilson his mouth dropped open suddenly who did i have a way of finding out your morbid george said his friend this has been a strain to you and you don't know what you are saying you'd better try and sit quiet till morning he murdered her it was an accident george wilson shook his head his eyes narrowed and his mouth winded silently with the ghost of superior hmm i know he said definitely i'm one of this trusting fellows and i don't know any harm to do anybody but when i get to know a thing i know it it was a man in that car she ran out to speak to him and it wouldn't stop michaelis has seen him too but it hadn't occurred to him that there was a special significance in it 
he believed that Mrs. Wilson had been running away from her husband rather than trying to stop any particular car. He could see of being like that. She's a deep one, said Wilson, as if he answered the question. He began to rock again, and Michaelis stood twisting the leash in his hand. Maybe you got some friend that I could telephone for her, George. This was a forlorn hope. He was almost sure that Wilson had no friend. There was not enough of him for his wife. We had glad to learn a little later when he noticed a change in a room, a blue quickening by a window, and realized that dawn wasn't far off. About five o'clock, it was blue enough outside to stab off the light. Wilson's glazed eyes turned out to the ash heaps with small grey cloud took on fantastic shape and scurried here and there in a faint dawn wind. I spoke to her, he muttered, after a long silence. I told her she might fool me, but couldn't fool God. I told her to the window. With an effort, he got up and walked to the rare window and leaned with his face pressed against it. And I said, God know what you've been doing, everything you've been doing. You may fool me, but you can't fool God. Standing behind him, Michaelis saw his spit, shock that he had looking at the eye of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg, which had just emerged, pale and enormous, from a dissolving night. God sees everything, repeated Wilson. That's an advertisement, Michelson assured him. Something made him turn away from a window and look back into the room. But Wilson stood there a long time, his face close to the window pane, nodding into a twilight. By six o'clock, Michelson was worn out and grateful for the sound of a car stopping outside. It was one of the watcher of the night before. He had promised to come back, so he cooked breakfast for three, which he and the other man ate together. Wilson was quieter now, and Michaelis went to home to sleep. When he woke four hours later and hurried back to a garage, Wilson was gone. His moments, he was on foot all the time, were afterwards traced to Port Roosevelt and then to God's Hill, where he bought a sandwich that he didn't eat and a cup of coffee. He must have been tired and walking slowly, for he didn't reach Gad's Hill until noon. Thus far, there was no difficulty in accounting for his time. They were boys who had seen a man acting sort of crazy and motorist at whom he started oddly from the side of the road. Then, for three hours, he disappeared from view. The police, on the strength of what he said to Michaelis, was going from garage to garage thereabout, inquiring for a yellow car. On the other hand, no garage man who had seen him ever came forward, and perhaps he had an easier, surrier way of finding out what he wanted to know. By half past two, he was in West Egg, 
where he asked someone the way to Gatsby house. So, by that time, he knew Gatsby's name. At two o'clock, Gatsby put on his bathing suit and left word with the butler that if anyone phoned wrong, was to be brought to him at the pool. He stopped at a garage for a pneumatic mattress that had amused his guest during the summer, and a coffer helped him to pump it up. Then he gave instruction that open the car wasn't to be taken out under any circumstances, and this was strange because the front right fender needed repair. Gatsby shouldered the mattress and started for the pool. Once he stopped and shifted it a little, the coffer asked him if he needed any help, but he shook his head and in a moment disappeared among the yellowing tree. No telephone messages arrived, but the butler went without his sleep and waited for until four o'clock until long after there was anyone to give it to him if he came. I had an idea that Gatsby himself didn't believe it would come, and perhaps he no longer cared. If that was trust, he must have felt that he had lost the old warm world, paid a high price for living too long with a single dream. He must have looked up at an unfamiliar sky through frightening leaves and shivered as he found what a gustier thing a rose is and show how raw the sunlight was upon that scarcely created grass. A new world, material without being real, where pure ghosts, breathing dreams like air, drifted fortunately about like that ashen, fantastic figure gliding towards him, towards the amorphous tree. The clover, he was one of the Wilsium protege, heard the shot Afterwards, he could only say that he hadn't thought anything much about them. I drove from a station directly to Gatsby House and my rushing anxiously up the front step was the first thing that alarmed everyone. But they knew then, I firmly believe. With scarcely the word said, four of us, the chauffeur, butler, gardener and I hurried down to the pool. There was a faint, barely perceptible moment of the water as the fresh flow from one end urged its way towards the drain at the other. With little ripples, they were hardly the shadow of waves. The Latin mattress moved irregularly down the pool. A small gust of wind that scarcely coagulated the surface was enough to disturb its accidental course with its accidental burden. The touch of a cluster of leaf resolved it slowly, tracing like a leg of transient a thin red circle in the water. It was after we started with Gatsby towards the house that the gardener saw Wilson's body a little way off in the grass and the hollow tent was complete.